Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. For those of you who, uh, who don't know me, I uh, want to introduce myself. My name is John Lewis. I'm one of the pastors here at Day 3. Um, pastor Lynn, uh, who is actually here somewhere today, I'm not going to look for him, but <laughs> um, it'll make me nervous uh, scrutinizing my sermon. Just kidding. He won't do that. Uh, but uh, Pastor Lynn, uh, some of you, most of you probably know his mother passed away on Monday. If you were here last Sunday, we actually spent time in the service praying for Pastor Lynn and his family. Specifically, uh, we had prayer requests for, for, his, um, for his family dealing with his mother. And, um, you know, there were some small groups that met on Sunday evening, and they prayed specifically for some requests that Pastor Lynn gave them. Uh, one was that he was concerned about his mother's salvation, that he knew that she had been a church member and, and, and various things, but he had some, some questions and he uh, asked for prayer for an opportunity to talk to her and have, and have some, some certainty. Uh, Monday morning, they actually were able to have that conversation. And then moments after uh, the conversation was done, uh, she passed away in her sleep, uh, as I understand it. And so um, I, I, I mentioned that to you to say a couple of things. Number one, pray for Pastor Lynn and his family. Um, his brother Tim and, and, and that family over in Wilkes, uh, as they deal with the loss, many of you in here have suffered a loss at some point with family member. You know what that's like. And uh, you know that um, the time after the funeral, the, the, the two or three weeks after the funeral probably is the hardest because that's when people stop calling and coming by and checking on you and things like that. So don't let that happen. Um, the second thing is just to say, praise the Lord for his faithfulness because um, Pastor Lynn had a specific request uh, to the small groups, and, and that request uh, was honored by the Lord. And his timing's perfect, you know? Uh, there's no way we could have orchestrated that uh, that way, uh, but God is sovereign, and he's able to do those things. So today, um, we're continuing the series on Membership ID. This is a series based on a book by Tom Rainer called I Am a Church Member. And uh, in the series, we've covered in the past weeks some of the characteristics of being a church member, some of the things that uh, we need to do as members of a church. Uh, the first week, we talked about being a functioning church member. We talked about the idea of connectivity, uh, which means you're connected to other people. We talked about the idea of being involved in ministry. And if you're a functioning church member, you're doing those things. We also talked the next week about being a unifying member. We talked about the steps of, of love and uh, our responsibility to one another, protection of one another, uh, forgiveness of one another, and doing the things that unify the body. Uh, then we talked about the uh, topic of being an unselfish church member. We discussed that we are not our own. We're bought with a price. We belong to Jesus, and that means we are servants. We, um, we need to realize that church is not about our preferences and our desires. It's not about our wants. It's about serving others and serving Christ. And then last week we discussed what it meant to be a praying church member. And we talked about praying for our leaders and their families and their protection. Today we're going to talk about the topic of being a nurturing church member. And when we discuss being a nurturing church member, I want to let you know that the book focuses on specifically nurturing your family. We're going to talk today about uh, going beyond just nurturing your family, because some of you in here uh, are maybe don't have a family. Maybe you're you're single uh, and and you don't have a spouse or children, or maybe you're divorced or uh, widowed or 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 whatever the situation may be. Maybe you don't have a a uh, an immediate family that you live with uh, that you would feel like that applies to you. But the topic of being a nurturing church member applies to all of us if we belong to the body of Christ. And so we're going to talk about expanding that concept. And so in doing that, the first thing we need to do is talk about the word nurture. We're going to look at the definition of the word. Now, in your updates, uh, there are no notes or fill-ins. You can write down whatever it is that you want to write down, uh, the things that you think are most important. There are some points in here that we'll get to, uh, but anything you want to write down, you write down. Um, 
But uh, anyway, the, the definition of nurture, here are some, some words that are synonymous and some definitions here. This, the word nurture means to rear, to bring up, to train, to care for, to foster, to educate, to nourish, to provide for, to sustain or maintain, to develop. Now, when you think of the word nurture, you probably have something that comes to your mind. You probably have an image that comes to your mind. Anybody want to tell me what's in your head right now? When I say nurture, you think of what? Mother, kids. Okay, I think it's pretty common. We may think of nurturing as, as, a, as a mother or a grandmother. Why we specifically gravitate to women uh, is, is probably, probably has something to do with the way that God made women to be natural nurturers for, uh, for children. And that, that seems to be the thing that, that just pops into our head, is that mom, moms and children. Um, and and that's, a, that's a God-given thing, honestly, folks. I'm not saying dads don't nurture as well. Uh, we do, and we should. But um, I've talked to many dads that, that say, especially in the early years, that they just don't know how to connect with their kids. And I think dads have an easier time as kids get older, oftentimes in connecting with folks, uh, connecting with their kids, it seems like. And, and, and that may be not the rule for everybody, but that's just something I've seen in, in my years of ministry and talking to folks. Um, so when we talk about the word nurture, you probably have something like that in your head. And I've said this many, many times before. Some of you in here have heard me say this, um, and I'll say it again because I think it's important. But it's like this. If you tell me you love me and then you treat my kids poorly, I don't believe you. And that's because my kids are the most important people in my world. My wife and my kids are the most important people in my world. And if you mistreat them and then tell me you love me, I don't believe you. You're probably the same way. And if that's true about you and I, Imagine how much truer that may be for Jesus. If we come into service and we sing our songs and we worship and say, Jesus, we love you, we adore you, and then we turn around and treat his kids in a way that doesn't honor him. Imagine how that pains the heart of the Savior. So it's important that we understand that we are called to nurture one another as church members. So what is a nurturing member? This is the definition that I've put in there for this week. A nurturing member is one who disciples others to have a heart for the church. Notice I didn't say their church or your church, the church. Because the church encompasses people that are outside of these walls. There are other believers, and we are bound to them through the bond of Christ Specifically, the local body should, should get the majority of our focus, just like your home would get the majority of your focus versus other people on the outside. Those are the people you live with. Your church, your local church, those are the people you do life with. But, but the concept is that we nurture, we disciple others to have a heart for the church, the body. In essence, a nurturing member is an example to other people and a leader by default. Now, you may be thinking this morning, I'm not a leader. I don't want to be a leader. I don't have what it takes to be a leader. I didn't sign up to be a leader. I'm not interested. The reality is you are a leader. Every one of you is a leader. Whether you have a title or a role that identifies you as such or not, you are a leader. Here's what I mean by that. The concept that John Maxwell teaches, John Maxwell is a leadership guru, and he's a Christian, and he talks a lot to churches and pastors, but he does a lot in the business realm as well. But he says this, he, said leadership, he says, leadership is caught, not taught. You can talk about leadership, but what people are going to replicate in their leadership is what is modeled before them. So that says something to us about what we ought to be doing. The second thing that John Maxwell says is that leadership is summed up in one word, and that is influence. And the reality is everybody in this room has influence over someone in life. There is somebody that you have influence over, and the question is, who is it that you have influence, whose life you have influence in, and is your influence positive or negative? You see, we can influence people negatively very easily. With It, it just comes natural. We're sinful people. We don't have to try. The reality is, because we're human beings, because we're sinful, we're going to unintentionally, unknowingly offend people at some point, probably often. 
And there are many, many times that that's going to happen, and we are influencing people negatively. And so some people may think, well, you know, if that's going to happen, what's the point then in trying? Well, the point is this. How horrible would it be for us to get to the end of this life and realize that, that we had the opportunity to change that. We had the opportunity to influence somebody positively for the gospel of Christ, and we weren't strategic or intentional about doing it. We've got to be intentional. So the question I want you to ask today of yourself is who is it that you're influencing, and are you influencing them positively or negatively? Because that's where we need to camp out as, as believers. We need to decide if we have an influence in somebody's life, we may not know if it's positive or negative even, but we need to make a decision that we're going to do everything we can in our power to make it positive. Amen? All right, so let's keep going. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about three basic circles of influence to start off with. Now, you have lots of different circles of influence in your life, but we're going to just sum them up for the sake of the the topic today. We're going to sum them up into three categories. The first one is the home. The home is an important circle of influence. The Lord commanded us in Scripture to be diligent in the leadership of our children in the ways of God. He commanded us in Scripture to be diligent in, uh, in, in uh, our, our leadership and relationship with our, our spouses and uh, our, our parents, our children. So, so we're going to look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. This is what, uh, what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You've probably heard that before. Jesus said that as well. Uh, this is what he was quoting, Deuteronomy 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Notice that. When do we teach diligently to our children the things of God and how to follow Him? We teach them when we sit in the house, and when we're out doing our business, whatever that may be, when we lie down at night and when we get up in the morning. Basically, the concept is what? All the time, right? All right. And he says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I got this idea when I was working on this the other night. I thought, you know, that's interesting. Maybe I should just take, you know, some of those things you say to your kids over and over again. And you're like, why, why, why aren't you changing this? I say this to you all the time. Parents, you got an amen? Anybody, everybody ever experienced that? And I thought, maybe I should just take a note card and, and write a verse on it and glue it right there between my eyes and so that when I'm talking to my kids, they, they see that verse. You know, I, um, sometimes it feels that way, like what, some of the most obvious things just get missed. But, you know, we do that too. You know, we're all children of God. And we do that too. You know, God, there's, there's times in our life, God says things to us over and over again in so many different ways. And he's just kind of going, I'm waiting on you to get it. I keep saying it. So, um, uh, but the idea here is that our home is an important place for us to do ministry. God called you as a parent to be, if you're a parent, God called you as a parent to be the primary discipler of your children. And, and, and I, want you to, I want you to hear that for me on, on multiple levels, okay? I am one of your pastors, but in addition to that, I'm also a parent. In addition to that, I'm also a homeschool parent. But lest you think that I, I, I think that the public schools are evil, we won't go there. But um, I, I, I was also a public school teacher, Okay, so I'm speaking to you on multiple levels. I'm speaking to you as a teacher, as a parent, as a as a as a um, as a pastor. It's important that we understand that it is our primary responsibility to disciple our children. One of the things that has that that has been a frustration to me when I was a youth leader and uh, when I was a school teacher and and as a parent is, is just realizing how realizing how much I fail at this and how much we all as a society fail at this from uh, oftentimes. But but we we tend to have this idea that the that the church youth group or children's ministry is responsible responsible for teaching our children about the Lord, and that the school is responsible for teaching our kids about education and academics. 
But folks, that's not what the Scripture says. And the Scripture says that as parents, it's our job to train them up. It's our job to disciple them. And so you don't have to, you, you don't have to um, do what I do in homeschool in order to do that. You can be wrong if you want to. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm, seriously, I'm just kidding. I, I don't project that that's, every, that's God's will for everybody. But I, but I want you to hear this. You don't have to homeschool your kids to do that. I know lots of families who are very, very active in their children's lives enough that they have the conversations they need to have with their kids before their kids encounter things in the school system. And they're involved. In, I can tell you as a former educator, a former public school teacher, that the the most uh, a significant indicator of a child's academic success in the school system is parental involvement. It doesn't matter what age they are, all the way up until the year they graduate. The, the thing that determines how successful a kid is in school, number one, most important, is the parent's involvement. If you are involved in that kid's academics, if you're involved in that kid's life, they will be successful. Why? Because they have the support of the person that God put in their life to be their primary discipler. It doesn't matter what they struggle in. Uh, and, and this isn't in my notes, but I'll I just tell you, I, I remember when I was teaching school, I, one lady that I worked with, uh, I taught her son a couple of years, and, and he, um, he had a, a mental disability, and his IQ was very, very low. And, and because of his mental disability, he qualified to be in certain classes in the school system where he was only with students that had an IQ of a certain range and he wasn't with the mainstream kids and his mom and dad said no not our son he will be in regular classes with regular kids now that kid I taught remedial math uh, for that student uh, one year and one of the things that I was doing in that remedial math class was multiplication tables because what I found as a math teacher was that most of the problems the students were having were because there were basics that they didn't that they didn't grasp early on and they got pushed along without having to to do that and so I didn't let them use calculators I made them memorize multiplication tables and use those multiplication tables till they didn't have to use a calculator and then once they didn't have to use a calculator anymore I could put it back in their hands for when they had more complicated issues and and because they understood some concept of what was happening mathematically. Uh, this guy, he worked for an entire semester to memorize multiplication tables. He struggled. His parents gave him rewards if he did a certain, uh, could achieve a certain level and all that sort of thing. He had to work a hundred times harder than, than the average student in the remedial class in order to memorize his multiplication tables. But his parents were right there by his side and they said, you can do this. You can do this, and we're going to be here to help. Guys, that is what God's called us to do, not in academics, but in everything in life. That's a nurturing parent. Anyway, I'm going to go on with the message. So the responsibility is primarily ours. Look at the uh, words of King Solomon to his son in uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Solomon is nurturing his son to listen to instruction. Notice he's not criticizing and he's not beating him over the head. He, he's using encouragement. He's using, using nurturing terminology. And uh, we need to be careful to make sure that we're nurturing and not always scolding and correcting. Um, I have, have a tendency to do that. I'm sure some of you other parents have a tendency to do that. We get frustrated, right? We have a tendency to focus on the negative and be critical, but we need to be nurturing and positive as well. The truth is um, we only learn two ways. We only learn two ways. One, we learn from our own mistakes, or number two, we learn from the mistakes of others. And which one's easier? Learning from the mistakes of others. Which one do we normally choose? Learning from our own mistakes. <laughs> And that's kind of that's kind of the point. I think God made us that way. And uh, here's a um, here's a proverb that you can uh, take with you: A truth heard melts like snow, and a truth discovered sticks like glue. That's a Lewisism that came from me. You can you can quote me on it if you want. But a truth heard melts like snow, and a truth discovered sticks like glue. And I found that to be true in my own life and in the lives of others. We got to give our kids opportunities to fail in a safe environment on small scale. 
we need to give them those opportunities because if they learn it on their own, if they, if they are in a safe and protected environment and they learn it on their own, it'll stick. Let them make some decisions and deal with the consequences. Spiritually, physically, whatever it may be, let them deal with it. But there are certain things that you don't. Like, I mean, you wouldn't leave a loaded gun in the room and wait to see if they pick it up, right? You know, you don't let them play around with certain things. There's, there's certain behaviors in life. You don't, let, you don't let them do those things because you love them. You set hard boundaries. But there's other things where you, you give them the freedom to make mistakes, and understand that's the way it is. So the first circle of influence is the home. The second circle of influence, and I'm sorry, the slides got kind of washed out in the transference from uh, uh, PC to Mac, but the, uh, the second circle of influence is the church, the body of believers. So that, again, that you can apply it to your local church or you can apply it to the, the church at large, but the second circle of influence is the church. And uh, we need to understand, we need to take the initiative to mentor others if we don't, where will the church be when we're gone? You know, um, Romans 15, I thought this was interesting in my studies this week. Romans chapter 12, just like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, talks about the example that Paul used or the illustration Paul used of the church being the body of Christ. And as we read, Paul talks about uh, how every person in the church is a member of the body and every member is important. And then he talks about spiritual gifts. Everybody has a gift and they need to use it for the Lord. And he goes on and he talks about all these things. And then at the end of this, he says, still talking about our relationship to one another in the body of Christ because of what Christ did for us. He says this, he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It goes back to our topic a few weeks ago of being an unselfish member. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. That's nurturing. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's a quote from Psalm 69, I believe it is. A prophetic uh, statement as well. And so uh, anytime in the New Testament you see the author say, it, as it is written, they're usually quoting the Old Testament. Um, and uh, so you can go back and find that somewhere. But uh, that statement tells us that it's our job to nurture one another, and we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. In other words, let's say it like this way. Put up with other people's mess-ups. All right. So in this passage, you can think of the word reproach similar to the word insult. And uh, maybe you've observed some behavior from somebody in the church before and thought, good grief, what an idiot. I can hear Mike Jacobs right now. <laughs> He's not in here. But his wife is laughing because you know I'm, you know I'm telling the truth. I can hear it right now. And, uh, and, and I say that in love because Mike, Mike is a friend of mine, and if he were in here, I'd say the same thing. I could pick on him. But, uh, but, but we, we've all done that. Some people have said it out loud, and other people have just said it in their minds. But we've all done that. We've observed somebody and just thought, what were they thinking? You may have even thought that about me. You may have thought that about Pastor Lynn or Pastor Daryl. I mean, we, we're human beings. We make mistakes, too. You probably have gone at some point, what in the world was that all about? And, you know, the Bible says that as nurturing members of the body, that we are to deal with that. We're to bear the mistakes of others. Paul says that we have to endure the reproach of those weaker believers as our own for the sake of building them up. In other words, it's our job to nurture them to maturity in Christ. And let me say this. When we talk about that passage and we say the weaker person, understand you may be weaker in some areas than I am but I may be weaker in other areas than you are. So when we talk about weaker, we're talking about on a case-by-case -case basis. We're not necessarily saying that, that this person's more spiritual than that person. We're all on a journey in, in sanctification and becoming like Christ, and we all have areas of weakness and areas of strength. The third circle that we have is, I've labeled it community on the graph here, but basically the concept I want you to think about is you have your home, you have the body of believers, and you have those who are not believers. So everybody else. And the reason I didn't put these as concentric circles or circles inside of circles is because there is an overlap. 
You know, sometimes there's people in your home that aren't saved. Sometimes, sometimes there's, there's people in, in your church that aren't saved. <laughs> sometimes there's people in, in your home that aren't in your church. I mean, it, it can go all kinds of different ways. And so uh, I've, I've let these overlap like this for a reason. But uh, the question is, what about our testimony outside the church? Now, I want to discuss with you a passage in the book that, that's mentioned in the book in the chapter on this topic. And it's applied to both the home and the folks outside the church. But I want to give you a little more detail about the passage because one of the things that I have a, a pet peeve about is when, when people are, are preaching, and, and um, I, I've observed this at times. I, I, don't, I don't observe it here. Pastor Lynn is very thorough in, in going through the Scripture, and he does a lot of word studies. But I've heard other people preach before, and they, they bring up a passage that has maybe a difficult portion to it, and, and they, they quote it, and they make their point. And they just kind of ignore the difficult part. And the more critical listeners out there are going, what does that part mean? And why didn't you tell us about that? You know, <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe he doesn't know either, you know. And so I want to um, I, I talk about this passage with a little bit more detail because I want to explain what's going on in it. Uh, but we're looking at a, uh, a passage where the Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Corinth and um, this is what he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 10 through 14. We're going to start off with the first two verses. It says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. In other words, when that clarifier is put in there, Paul is saying, This did not come from Paul. This came from the Lord. It's in the Scripture. This is the command he's already given. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, what Paul is doing is he's simply reiterating the command that God had already given in Scripture concerning the permanence of marriage. Jesus reiterated it as well. He only allowed divorce in cases of adultery, unfaithfulness. That's the only permission that God gave for divorce in the Scripture. But his preference is always for reconciliation whenever possible. Now, that is not a statement of judgment on anyone in here who's divorced or remarried. I am simply telling you what the Word says. Where you are right now in your walk with the Lord and where you were when those things happened and the circumstances are all individual situations and you cannot make a choice for both parties. You can only make a decision about your behavior and your choices. So understand, sometimes God puts, a, sometimes God, I shouldn't say put, sometimes God allows us to go through situations that we have no control over. And so I want to make sure that, that if you are one of those people that you don't hear condemnation in that statement, okay? Understand that. We're going to keep talking about this and you'll get some more information about it in a moment. But this is God's will for marriage, his perfect will. It's not what always happens in the world. So here's what's going on. Um, there were, uh, in the Corinthian church, Paul was dealing with Gentiles who were relatively new believers. And because of the commands in Scripture, they were asking this question, uh, well, should I divorce my unbelieving spouse and marry a Christian? Now, why would they think that? The reason they thought that is because in the Old Testament, uh, God didn't, uh, God gave them a command not to marry people from other cultures who worshiped other gods because he knew that it would lead them astray, lead them into idolatry. And so he commanded the people, don't marry, into these, uh, marry with somebody from one of these other cultures because they will lead you away from following God. And in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah, we see an instance where, where actually because the people had done that, God sent the prophet to, to rebuke the people and to carry out judgment to some degree uh, for that sin, that specific sin of, of, of intermarrying with these other people and following other gods. And specifically, what they were to do was literally to divorce their unbelieving spouses and children. The Bible says, put them away or send them away. And, it, and it's the same word as divorce. And it's literally, it's to abandon and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but it, was, it was this concept of 
to put them away, to abandon them, to forsake them. I'm going to move back for a second. So, so they are looking at this and going, well, God has commanded that we not be married to unbelievers. And so should we divorce these unbelieving spouses and remarry to Christian people? And so Paul says, listen, let me make it clear. This is the only circumstance where God says divorce is allowed. Then he goes over here and he finishes. He says, to the rest of you, I say, I not the Lord. In other words, this has not been recorded before in Scripture, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul speaks this. We know that all Scripture is given by God as God breathed, and so this is just as, 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 um, as authoritative as the previous word, but when Paul was giving it, it wasn't already printed in Scripture. And so he says, I'm saying this, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, in the book, he just skips right over that. He doesn't talk about that, and I, and I think it's important because I want to make sure you understand this concept of being made holy is not a statement of, of, of uh, pronouncing them to be sinless. It's not a statement of saying that they are saved because you're saved and they're married to you. It's not saying your children are saved because you're saved and they're in your household. What is it saying? It's referring back to this other discussion. Let's look at the Greek terms real quick. The, um, diver- the word divorce is apheami in the Greek, which means to put away, abandon, or forsake. The word or, uh, unclean is akathertos. Which I don't know if I'm pronouncing these Greek words correctly, but you can figure it out for yourself later. Which means impure or ceremonially unclean. And, and when it came to that which was unclean, the Jews were not allowed to, to touch unclean things. All right? Now, and then this, the term made holy is hagiadzo. I think is how you pronounce that. And it meant sanctified or separated from all that is profane or unclean and dedicated to God. So if we look at those words and what they mean in the Greek and look at the context of what Paul's talking about and who he's talking to, then we can look at this verse differently and, say, and, and realize that he's saying that if you are, an un, if you are married to an unbeliever, that the unbelieving husband or wife is separated from all that is unclean and dedicated to God's purposes because of the believing spouse. What does that mean? Look, they were married, and then one of them received Christ and became a Christian. And this, so Paul is saying basically what that means is now God has a plan And this person is a part of his plan in your life. This person, though they are an unbeliever, is now dedicated to the purposes of God in your life as you proceed to follow me and become holy or sanctified. The process that God works out in our life. And so he's saying that this person is now set aside for God's purposes. They still have to make a decision for Christ to receive salvation. That's a different statement. But at the very least, they are going to be the beneficiaries in a limited amount, the beneficiaries of a portion of God's grace as God is working in your life and they're in the presence of that. And he's using them through that. And he says the same thing about the children. The children would have been unclean, but because of this, they're holy. In other words, they were concerned God was not going to recognize the union that they had with unbelievers. And Paul says, no, God recognizes it and he views it as a part of his will and his process in your life. They are not unclean. They are set apart for God's purposes. Does that make sense? Okay, that's why I wanted to hit that. So what's the commonality in these three circles? We have the home, the church, and the community, and we are part of all of that. So if you look at yourself and you look at these circles in your life, you realize I am the common factor. And what am I supposed to do? How do I nurture all these different relationships like we talked about before? How do I be the person who, who nurtures or fosters a, a love for the church in all of these circles? 
one of the things you need to understand is that your responsibility to do that in each of these situations is different. Um, you, you know, in, in the life of unbelievers, you may be, the, you may be one person out of many uh, soft touches. One example that God puts into their path with the folks in the church, uh, oh, but with, with the unbelievers, ultimately God's responsible. Ultimately, God's responsible, but he calls us to be co-laborers in the harvest. In the church, it's the cooperative effort of every believer to nurture one another. The pastors have a greater responsibility simply because of the role that God's placed us in, but it's a joint effort of the entire body that gets the job done. As a matter of fact, the pastors are not unaccountable. We're accountable to you as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're accountable to you just like you're accountable to us. The difference is not um, a, a, a difference in value. The difference is a difference in assignment. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But in, and in, in the home circle, it's primarily your job. Other people may play a part, but you're ultimately the one with the greatest responsibility in your home. So you may be thinking, how do I help them to love the church? There it goes. All right, not sure what happened to the slide there. But how, if, how do we nurture them to love the church? And the first thing we've got to understand is we need to become the change that we want to see. So it's kind of like this. The next few uh, points that we're going to go through are the things that we need to teach people uh, if we're going to nurture them to love the church, but they're also the things that we need to first model. Because in order for them to get it, remember leadership's caught, not taught. And it's about influence. So if we're going to make an influence, if we're going to if we're going to uh, project something that they can catch that's worth catching, you know, we've got to become the change that we want to see. So the first thing we have to teach them to do, and the first thing we have to do ourselves is is learn to examine ourselves. In Matthew chapter seven, we we see the discussion that Jesus has. He says, uh, "Judge not." That you, that you be not judged. And then he talks about the log and the speck. He says, uh, why do you go to remove the speck from your brother's eye when all the time you have a log sticking out of your own? And he says in verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I want to tell you something that is very concerning to me. People, anytime you say something that uh, that calls a person's behavior sin, especially somebody outside of the church, what do they say to you? Don't what? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. They say, the Bible says don't judge. Well, that's not what Jesus said. He said, let, let's, let's clear this up because this is important. Anytime you make a decision, you judge. I mean, we have to discern right and wrong, good and bad, better or best, all the time. That is judgment. Jesus didn't say don't judge. He said, don't judge so that you won't be judged. And the point of that is this. Here's what he's saying. He says, look, it's easy to be critical and nitpick someone else's faults, but it's far more important that you look at your own life first. And if you'll do that and say, Lord, I see this in them, do I have that problem? And deal with your own self first, then when you go to that person, you have clear vision. You're able to say, hey, listen, I see this issue in your life and I'm concerned about you. You're able to do it out of a motivation of love and nurturing and not, hey, you need to stop that. And that's, there's a big difference. So let's not say God said don't judge. God tells us to judge between right and wrong, good and bad all the time. He just tells us to start with ourselves. And that's an important distinction. So when we go to people, it's not us judging if we say what God says. But it is hypocritical if we've not evaluated our own lives first. That's the difference. The second thing we need to do is we need to submit to Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, we see a discussion about uh, marriage, husbands and wives. And uh, I'm going to read this passage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ... 
so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Ladies, I have one thing to say. I didn't write the book, and I didn't write Tom Rainer's book. And again, Tom Rainer didn't even address this. He just went on by it. Let me say this, okay? If you have an aversion to the word submit, I understand this is a touchy subject for a lot of people in our, in our society and even in the church at times. I want to be very clear with you. If you have an aversion to that, would you please just set that to a side? You can pick it up later when you walk out the door if you want. You know. But for just a minute, would you just put that to the side and listen to me and give me an opportunity to explain something to you? The first thing that you need to understand is that when people say that the Bible or Christianity is sexist, that it's out to subvert or oppress women, they don't know what they're talking about. Let me give you some examples. First of all, first of all, we talked about divorce earlier. In biblical times, women were seen as property. They didn't have any rights. Children didn't have any rights either. Sons could become heirs, but daughters were property to be sold to someone who'd pay a good price for them as a bride. Women were not honored in the society of that time. But God said, even though the society says, men, that you can divorce your wife for any reason or no reason at all, if you just get tired or bored, you can say, I don't want you anymore, get out. God said, not those of you who belong to me. You can only divorce your wife if there's an issue of unfaithfulness. And that's not my will that you do it, but I'm allowing it simply because he knew how difficult it is to rebuild trust after that happens. Guys, that's honoring and protecting women in that time, is it not? Here's another thing. We see in the lineage of Christ, we see women in the Old Testament mentioned in the lineage of Christ. Ruth, Rahab. By the way, what was Rahab? A prostitute. Not somebody that the world would say deserves honor. But what did God do? He honored her. He wasn't ashamed to put her name in the lineage of Christ. What about in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, where Paul says, for those who are in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither, there's neither uh, male nor female because all are one in Christ. Paul says, hey, that's your sister, not your property. Treat her the way that you would treat one of God's children. What about this? The testimony of women in biblical times was considered not worthy, not valid. Women couldn't testify in court. And yet, what did Jesus do? Jesus allowed the first people to witness the resurrection to be women. He allowed it to be a woman who was sent as a messenger to the 12 to let them know about the resurrection. A woman in their culture was not a valid testimony. Her word was not a valid testimony, and, and God allowed it to be a woman's testimony that told her the greatest news ever. Guys, God honored and revered women in Scripture. He elevated their status and he put them on the same level as men. Let me make something clear to you. Let's read the rest of this passage. That word submit has nothing to do with oppression. It is talking about the mystery that God has revealed through marriage that reflects Christ and his church. The rest of the passage says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Both of these commands, the husband's command, the wife's command, they are different roles. They are different assignments. We'll save the rest of it for another sermon. But just understand, it's not a different value. It's a different assignment. And it's not an assignment based on one being better than another. In your job, you may have a title. Maybe you're over the billing and somebody else is over quality control. Maybe your, your, your employer sees you as just as valuable as one another. You get paid the same wage. But 
the person who's over quality control has no business coming in and telling the billing person how to do the billing. And the person who's over the billing has no business going in to the quality control manager's office and telling them how to handle quality control because the billing manager and the quality control manager have two different assignments. They have different jobs, not better or worse, not more important or less important, different and both vitally important to the company. And God's design for marriage is the same way. He didn't say, women, you're not as important as men, or you're not as good as men. He said, women, you have a different assignment. And men, you have a different assignment. And so without going into any more sermon on men and women in marriage, I just want to show you that the commitment for both of these, both of these uh, uh, commands are about following uh, the example of Christ. It is all about the greater mutual submission that we have to Jesus as the head. As Lynn said a few weeks ago, Jesus is the head of this church, not him, not me, not Daryl, not anybody else here. Jesus should be the head of this church. Amen? Okay. All right. Off soapbox. All right. So the rest of this, Paul talks about this in, later on. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, Make sure you follow the commands because God has a plan for that. So we see that how many of you would say as a follower of Christ, how many of you would be offended by the statement that we should fully surrender and submit to our Lord and Savior? Anybody? Anybody offended by that? The one who died for us, the one who gave his life freely, We wouldn't be offended by that when it's about Jesus. So when God says, hey, this is the model I've set up to to reveal my glory and the mystery of the church, it's important. It's important. It's not a status thing. It's it's a difference in God's uh, assignment. But anyway, the next thing we need to do is honor authority. Later on in Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about children and parents and, uh, and, and he says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. It's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the dis- discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And one of the things that I see here is, and, and he doesn't necessarily make this exact connection in the book, but one of the things that I see here is, is that this is very similar in my mind to the role between leaders and, and, and members. And I don't mean just pastors. Um, I, it could be if you're a Sunday school teacher or a, a children's ministry teacher or a small group leader or a, uh, whatever your role is, whatever it is you do, whatever your area of leadership is. The, the idea is that God has laid out positions of authority and he asks us to honor that authority. Not because they're more perfect than we are. I mean, look, your pastors are just as sinful as anybody else in here. We have just as much need for, for forgiveness and grace as anybody else. We make just as many mistakes. The difference is not, the difference is not that, we're, that we're more holy. The difference is that God called us to a different job. And so whatever God decides to do, we need to honor that authority. Now, the, one of the ways you can honor that authority is this. And I, this is really important when we talk about being a nurturing church member. One of the ways you can honor the authority is if you have a problem with a person in authority, go to that person. Just like we talked about in the, the, the section, the chapter on unity, go to that person. I mean, how many, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us have been in churches before where, where somebody gets angry at the pastor or a deacon or a whatever, and, and, and there's all kinds of strife that happens because people disagree on things. Well, even if somebody's wrong or if it's just opinion, whatever it may be, the issue needs to be dealt with from a standpoint of nurturing one another. Um, so it's important that we honor authority. Um, he also tells us that if we are in a position of leadership, that we don't need to uh, exasperate or provoke uh, our children to anger. It's kind of the same. We talked about this a little bit earlier, you know, um, that, uh, that leaders need to deal with each other, deal with, with people in a, in a, um, nurturing manner as well. Um, the, the deal is this, just as the members of your own family aren't perfect, the members of your church are not either. And we need to exercise love and grace. We need to exercise forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation and humility 
and patience with not only the members of our natural family, but the members of our church family as well, because we're all flawed. And the last thing we need to do is we need to commit to love unconditionally. Now, we talked about um, this idea of loving one another and forgiving and and that sort of thing in in previous messages. But um, the the specific thing I want to focus on today with this with this point is, is the word commit. Because I, I think that we throw that word around in, in life and we don't realize what it means. Here's the definition of commitment. Uh, there's a lot of definitions there, but uh, a promise to do or give something. A promise to be loyal to someone or something. The attitude of someone who works very hard to do or support something. An agreement or pledge to do something in the future an engagement to assume a financial obligation, something pledged or promised, the state or an instance of being obligated or emotionally impelled, for example, a commitment to a cause. If that doesn't get the idea across to you, here's some synonyms. It means words that mean the same thing. Allegiance, attachment, fidelity, Constancy, dedication, devotedness, devotion, faith, faithfulness, loyalty, steadfastness. Some antonyms, words that mean the opposite. Disloyalty, faithlessness, falseness, falsity, inconsistency, infidelity, perfidiousness, which basically means being untrustworthy, treachery, unfaithfulness. Commitment is a strong word. It's a very strong word. And yet what happens most of the time in churches is, and we we see this in the book, he talks about this guy named Bob that kind of helped him overcome this as a new churchgoer. But, But what we see oftentimes is people go into a church, they love it until they see the problems. And then once they start seeing problems, they get irritated with things and they go, yeah, I'm gonna go find some other place. Whether, whether they, they leave because there's conflict or whether they leave because they disagree with something or whether they leave because they're not being entertained anymore or they don't feel like the sermon is scratching their itch or whatever their reason is, it, it, it doesn't matter. The problem is that, that people haven't understood the word commitment. When you commit to a group of people, it, it means something. It ought to. And in our society, it doesn't typically. So we need to commit to love unconditionally. Well, what does that mean? If we understand the word commit, that means that, that uh, um, sometimes we're going to have to forgive when we don't feel like it. But Jesus said this. He said that we should forgive somebody 70 times 7. What that means is, look, if they came to you 7 times a day, if they offend you, Greatly, seven times a day for 70 days in a row, you got to forgive them every time. Guys, I'm going to tell you something. There are people who have offended and hurt me, and I have trouble getting over it years later. And I know if I deal with that, you deal with that because we're all the same. There are people who are offended, who get offended by me at times and, and are not willing to work it out within the body of Christ. And I used to be that way too, and so did you. And maybe you still are. But we can't, we can't let that cause us to stumble. Here's one of the things you need to remember, and I, one of the things we all need to remember is that People are not the enemy. It does not matter what somebody has done to you. They are not your enemy. Satan is your enemy. And Satan will do everything he can to use people to get you distracted from what God calls you to do. Because if, you can, if he can get your attention and your emotion focused on this problem over here, then you're not paying attention to being obedient to what he's told you to do. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you. Satan has been after me this week in preparation for this message. 
I got an email from somebody just two days ago that I looked at my wife and I said, how am I supposed to write a sermon? I can't, I can't think about anything else because of the things that person said to me. And I, and I, I thought, and, and you know, I wrote, I, I typed my email response and I didn't send it. And then I prayed and then I typed a new email response. And my new email response said, I love you. And I believe you're a well-intended person who's misinformed. And you are not my enemy. And I am not your enemy. Satan is the enemy. And he wants nothing more than to bring division between us. Because he knows that he can get us off track. That's how we have to live every moment of every day. And I had to work through that as I'm writing this message and go, that's hard. 70 times 7? What if I got 7 of those emails every day for 70 days? And Jesus says, forgive. You have to. You have to. Why do we have to? Why do we have to? Why would we do it? Because Christ has set the example for us. When we talk about being an unselfish member or a unifying member or a functioning member or a praying member or a, or a, or a, a nurturing member, what we're talking about is, look, model inside the church who Jesus is to one another. That's the bottom line. Model Jesus to one another. And he's our example. We talked about Romans 15 earlier. Here's the rest of that passage. He said, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches or the insults of those who insulted you fell on me. So, here's the rest of it. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Put up with one another's junk. Put up with offense. Forgive as often as it happens, no matter how bad it hurts whether it's in your marriage, whether it's with your kids, whether it's with your coworkers, whether it's with the, the people in your own church as often as possible. Why? What's, why do we do it? Why do we do it? What's the last phrase? For the glory of God. You know what happens? I hate to say this. I say this. I say this with pain in my heart because I know I struggle with it. And I've struggled with it this week. But you know what happens when we get caught up in how we feel about an offense? It means that this right here, we take that last word and we replace it with me. For the glory of me, because I was hurt, because I was offended, because I was wronged, because they sinned against me. For the glory of me. And Jesus said, God forbid. Paul said, God forbid, we do it for the glory of God. We do it for the risen Savior who demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. While we were haters, mockers, scorners, that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have any clue what they're doing. Forgive them. And you and I are supposed to model that with one another. That's why the scripture says that I die daily. People always say die to self, die to self, die to self. The Bible doesn't say die to self. That's just the way we phrase it so we can kind of understand it. But it says die daily. In other words, it says, God, whatever happens to me, I choose right now, good or bad, Pain, suffering, offense, 
whatever it is, I'm dead. You live. You live in my life. I die. Whatever you bring my way, good or bad, I'm dead. You do it. I'm going to be honest with you guys. That's hard. I don't know how to do that. It is a struggle because we live in this fallen flesh. But we have to make a commitment, a decision, not just today, but every day, not just now, but every moment. We have to make a decision. God, right now, in the midst of my pain, I'm going to model Christ. God, right now, in the midst of my hurt, in the midst of my suffering, God, right now, in the midst of my struggle, whatever it is, I'm going to model Jesus because you died for me when I was that way to you. The invitation today, the invitation today is an invitation to come and surrender to Christ and to follow his example of nurturing his bride, the church. Today, the invitation is about this. It's about the need to demonstrate and model the correct attitude towards the church in front of our children, in front of our spouses, in front of our coworkers. The need to include them in the things that we do to love the church, to serve the church. The need to nurture um, the relationships that we have with other members and those outside. It's about the importance of mentoring other people to model this and the importance of forgiving past hurts. It's not easy. But it's rarely the easy things in life that are good. Usually it's the hard things that are the best. I want you to say this with me. It's hard, but it's good. It's hard, but it's good. I want you to bow your heads with me. Today, maybe you need to come and make a commitment to the Lord. Not, not to day three, but to his church for his glory. Maybe you need to come today and commit yourself to being a better example to your family. Maybe you need to pledge to God that you're going to do a better job at examining your own life before finding fault with others. Maybe you're asking God to help you love his bride regardless of their actions. That's what I'm going to pray today. Maybe you need to say today, God, I choose as an act of my will to obey Christ and forgive the people who've hurt me. Maybe God's leading you and convicting you that you need to be seeking ways to encourage other people to love the body of Christ at day three. Father, I I pray... that you'd help us, Lord, to model the submission and the sacrifice of your Son. That we'd be fully submitted to you as our leader and that we would exemplify you by being willing to lay down our own lives, our own concerns, our own desires, our own feelings for the sake of your glory. Help us, Lord, to be better nurturers by setting an example. 
Father, I know there's people in this room that are hurting today. I see it on their faces as certain topics come up. I know that they're dealing with stuff. And Lord, I know it's hard to forgive. I know it's hard to walk out and model who you are in the midst of pain. I pray you strengthen them today. I pray that they come forward and get right with you, whatever they need to deal with today. And Father, for the one who's here today who doesn't know you, if there's any in this room, I pray, Lord, that they would they'd come before you and confess their sin and repent, turn of it, and receive Christ for salvation. Empower us now to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. As the, uh, as the band sings or as Jake sings, I want you to uh, take this time to be in prayer. Whether, you're, whether at your seat or come forward, whatever you need to do. If you need to receive Christ this morning, I'm here to talk to you. Pastor Lynn's in the back of the room. There's others that would love to pray with you, pray for you. As the Lord leads, you come. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.